RTHK News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. Hong Kong University Sachs Law Professor and Occupy founder Benny Tai. Beijing orders tit-for-tat moves against Britain, Canada and Australia over Hong Kong extradition deals. And the SAR records more than 100 new coronavirus infections as well as another death. The University of Hong Kong's Governing Council has voted to sack Associate Law Professor Benny Tai for misconduct over his criminal offences related to the 2014 Occupy movement. Professor Tai broke the news himself in a Facebook post after a three-hour meeting to, ter- to determine his fate. One of the council members, Student Lee, said he w- says the decision was made on a majority vote. He says he's disappointed and furious about the ruling. I hope that the lay member and the external member love, cherish and value our university as much as I and as much as our student and staff do. However... I'm very doubt about this now. I do hope that in the future and in the next council meeting and after the appearing of uh, Associate Professor Tai, the council can revisit the decision they have made. Professor Tai was sentenced to 16 months in prison over public nuisance charges related to the 2014 Occupy protests, but he's out on bail pending an appeal. Hong Kong is suspending mutual legal assistance agreement for criminal matters including extradition with Britain, Canada and Australia. It comes as New Zealand becomes the latest country to suspend its extradition treaty with the SAR over the national security law. Damon Pang reports. Britain, Canada and Australia all suspended their extradition agreements with Hong Kong earlier this month after Beijing imposed its national security law on the SAR. In the capital, Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin said the three countries have grossly interfered in China's internal affairs. He said they are wrong to politicize judicial cooperation with Hong Kong and their moves have seriously hurt the basis for such collaboration. Mr Wang also said that Beijing reserved the right to take action against New Zealand as well. Wellington has announced it is also suspending its extradition treaty with Hong Kong as it can no longer be sure that the SAR's criminal justice system is sufficiently independent from the mainland. The SAR government says acting on Beijing's instructions, it's informed Britain, Canada and Australia of the suspension of the agreements. It says the three countries used the implementation of the national security law as an excuse to suspend their extradition treaties with the SAR and this smacks of political manipulation and double standards. The government also says the country's wrongful acts violate the basic norms governing international relations. In other news, another 106 coronavirus infections have been confirmed in Hong Kong. All but eight of the patients are believed to have caught the virus while in the territory, with the others recently returning from overseas. Health officials say there's a new cluster of cases with close to 20 infections among people linked to a building firm. Dr Chuang Shukwan says some of the company's staff didn't wear masks at their office in Kuantong. For the, the affected company, I understand it's an indoor um, office setting, so it's not so crowded. But whether there's related construction site outbreak or there's a separate construction site outbreak is still undergoing investigation. So in any setting, if there is a silent carrier or there's an affected case, if the contact between people, two persons is close without mask, there's a risk of transmission. An 85-year-old man with coronavirus died in Eastern Hospital this afternoon. It's Hong Kong's 23rd death linked to the pandemic.
Asia World Expo will reportedly be turned into a treatment centre next month to cater for COVID-19 patients with mild symptoms. Sources say authorities are already putting in place infection control and ventilation equipment and purchasing beds. The hospital authority is also said to be hiring additional staff to work at the site. Taiwan is investigating its first possible local coronavirus infection in more than a month, involving a Thai man who's tested positive. The migrant worker arrived on the island in January and tested positive on Saturday, shortly after returning to Thailand. Officials say more than 180 people who had contact with him in Taiwan have undergone health screenings. Taiwan has so far confirmed 467 infections and has seen seven deaths. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. Malaysia's former Prime Minister Najib Razak has been sentenced to 12 years in prison for abuse of power over a massive financial scandal known as 1MDB. He also received 10-year jail terms for each of the six counts of money laundering and breach of trust. The seven sentences are to run concurrently, but the court has granted a delay in carrying them out. Here's the BBC's Jonathan Head. I think Mr Najib himself will be a little shocked. He clearly believes that some of the political changes in Malaysia that we've seen this year, in particular his party, UMNO, coming back into government, into a coalition government, would somehow work in his favour. The judge just wasn't buying it. He listed item by item how unconvinced he was by the defence presented by Mr Najib, saying that in the end the prosecution case stood. And it was a very damning case indeed, relating to around $10 million transferred into Mr Najib's personal account. The Secretary for Health, Sophia Chan, says she believes the number of local coronavirus infections will fall over the next week or two. Priscilla Ng reports. Sophia Chan told an RTHK radio program that when the latest wave of COVID-19 cases started earlier this month, data showed one person could infect up to four people. That rate has now come down to one. She acknowledged the stricter measures were inconvenient, but urged the public to be understanding. Ian Cheng, a chief manager of the hospital authority, meanwhile, said public hospitals were under immense pressure and many confirmed cases were at home waiting for admission. He dismissed comments from a doctor's union that drug treatment could begin at home for early intervention. Dr. Zheng said patients' conditions must be carefully monitored. The pro-Beijing DAB party is urging the government to test Chunmun residents for COVID-19, given the number of new cases being reported in the area. Officials have already started a testing program in another of the city's hotspots, Tso Wan Shan. Here's the DAB's Holden Chow. We have seen a lot of confirmed cases in Trimun. So Trimun actually deserve a team of medical practitioners to go out and do all the testing for the Trimun residents. And actually these days I've been around in Trimun area and we have seen that those confirmed cases and people have grave concern. So if they could assign a team of medical practitioners to carry on with the testing in Chiranshan, why not they assign another team of specialists to carry out the testing for Chumbun residents. The Hong Kong Retail Management Association has urged landlords to go easy on shop tenants if they're unable to pay their rent. The association says revenues in the retail sector have dropped by up to 80% amid the pandemic. The association's CEO, Annie Tsur, told Wendy Wong that landlords should lower rents for up to a year. We are now facing a very, very difficult situation. You know, after the, the first and second wave of uh, COVID, 
actually the um, the landlord has started to um, tighten their concession. It's so difficult that because of the third wave right now that we are facing, because of the um, tightening in, in all the restrictions, nowadays the retail sales is really facing a very difficult situation together with the um, uh, lack of attention from the, the landlord that uh, they are tightening their concessions or even um, not giving any concessions at all. There are so many retailers coming to me cry for help. I think it's the right time for us to um, speak up again, to uh, call for attention and also to give pressure to the landlord and hopefully they will be able to offer some help to all the retailers. Are you saying that some landlords offered some concession to tenants earlier this year but they stopped doing that when the coronavirus situation improved previously? Um, yeah, they did. Actually, since uh, February, March, I think that's the peak time that they are giving out concessions. But since April, the situation is getting worse, that most of the landlords are starting to, t- starting to tighten the um, concession. And actually, up to now, I, I would say the majority of the, the tenants are not getting any help from the landlord. They even get legal letters from the landlord chasing for the rent to be paid talking about 100% of the rent. And also, like, some landlords use a, um, set up a condition that uh, required the, the tenant to extend their lease for another 12 to 18 months after the lease expired. It is a very bad choice, actually. Actually, I would say that you have no choice. But uh, if you want to get concessions, you have to give something back to the landlord. But I think at this moment, in this COVID-19 situation, it is quite impossible for tenants to be able to give anything back to the um, landlord because everybody are facing such an extreme difficulties. The chairman of the Leng Kwai Fong Group says thousands of restaurants could close if the government's ban on dining in continues for more than three weeks. Alan Zeman told Janice Wong that around 10% of the bars and restaurants in the Lan Kwai Fong area have already closed down since the pandemic started. If it goes more than a month, you might have close to five or 6,000 restaurants possibly having to close up or, or close down. And, and uh, talking about as much as $7 billion Hong Kong dollars in August alone, now, if that happens, the government will have to step up with subsidies, maybe $8 billion, something like that, and subsidies, again, to help the industry, because otherwise you can have a lot more unemployment. And uh, the unfortunate thing is Hong Kong people live in a very small flats. Many don't cook at home. Closing down, especially for the lunch, is very, very difficult. People are having a, a difficult time. Uh, offices, uh, everyone cannot work from home. And even for deliveries, you have an hour for delivery for lunch. And so that becomes a problem because you can't physically deliver everything at the same time as you get too many orders. And so it's a huge problem. So hopefully uh, we can open the restaurants uh, sooner rather than later. And do you have an idea how many restaurants have already been closed down uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic? I don't have the actual numbers, but uh, I can tell you the Lan Kwai Fong area we've had approximately 10%, which is a, a huge number. Um, and and uh, it's probably similar throughout the city. You know, and, and then the problem is finding a new tenant to take the place also does not work. Landlords will have to step up to uh, helping the, their, 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 uh, their tenants. Uh, but again, not every landlord will do that. And uh, I think the world is not just Hong Kong, but the world is facing a huge problem going forward. 
come up and, and we can get back to what we call the new normal. But it, it's a very huge, big problem at the moment. And earlier you just said uh, the government should offer subsidies to the catering industry. Uh, but some in the catering industry believes the government should offer a compensation instead. Uh, do you think a compensation is better or, or a subsidy? I think the subsidy works. Uh, I think they've done it before in the past. And, and I think, I think uh, it, it, uh, it does help. Listen, any amount of money, whether it's compensation, whether it's subsidy, anything helps. But because uh, people are in life support, and and it's it's uh, it's it's a big problem. The other problem is, of course, is they've closed down parks, swimming pools, uh, uh, sports facilities, and and uh, with people living in such small places, people need to get out. They need to. They they can't. Hong Kong is very unique because we don't have big houses, and that's a real problem. A ban on dining in in restaurants comes into force tomorrow as part of the latest efforts to stem the spread of coronavirus. But what do people think about the move? RTHK's Jimmy Choi has been finding out. It doesn't matter to me because uh, usually I'll just uh, buy to go and then um, I'll bring it to the office. Mr Tang, an office worker in the commercial sector, is taking the new dining-in ban in his stride. But he's worried some Hong Kongers will find it tough. To many other people, they don't have maybe an office or a uh, fixed uh, working location. It, it may influence them a lot. Construction worker Mr Lam, meanwhile, said he was already planning his final meals out before the new rule comes into effect. Of course it will affect me. I will probably have lunch in a park. You just can't do anything about it. But of course this will be much harder for us. At least we could eat in air-conditioned places in the past. But now we can't. Mr Lau, who works in the commercial sector, says he supports the new measure as it will help contain the virus. But he thinks the government should have introduced it even sooner. It's too late. I think at the very beginning, you should ban no dying. We can stop the spread out of the virus. It will not affect me because I will take away anyway. I take away to my office every week, every day. But office worker Ms Wong thinks a complete ban on dining in is far too harsh. It's too strict on us, but not so strict on the, maybe on the, on the border, etc. It's not fair. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. Hong Kong University Sachs law professor and Occupy founder Benny Tai. Beijing orders tit-for-tat moves against Britain, Canada and Australia over Hong Kong extradition deals. And the SAR records more than 100 new coronavirus infections as well as another death. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's news wrap programme. The Labour Party's Fernando Chung says after serving as a lawmaker since 2004, it's time to step aside to let younger politicians with more fire and passion take over. But he also admits that too much passion can also have its drawbacks in politics. The retired social science professor first announced his decision to step down ahead of the 2020 elections two years ago. Mike Weeks asked him why. After a while, you get used to what you do and then you start getting this inertia and this is really something that I'm afraid of. I don't want to occupy such a privileged position for too long and perhaps after a while start losing the edge and therefore I think it is time to move over to allow uh, younger people to 
try it out, especially in such difficult times. Of course, two years ago, we haven't experienced the uh, anti-extradition bill uh, movement, and now uh, we have national security law. Uh, and of course, in, the, in these times, uh, I think it is even more calling for uh, younger people to come on uh, such positions. But don't we also need level heads at times like this, that perhaps too much passion is a bit dangerous? Well, it is true. Uh, we certainly need people in uh, different sort of uh, roles and positions. Uh, but uh, as you can see what happened in the Democratic primary, a lot of the support goes to the younger, inexperienced, but brave, younger ones. The seasoned politicians seem to be not as popular uh, than someone who is totally inexperienced, unknown, and yet they represent the voice of the discontent. So um, in these time of ages, uh, it is sometimes uh, not that reasoning and, 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 and using uh, data, uh, research, uh, evidence in formulating policy isn't such a, a, a popular thing to do. Uh, it is more of uh, providing the checks and balances uh, to the government and also um, really making that discontent hurt, sometimes even by physical fights. And, and in my age, <laughs> I'm 63, uh, it is getting a bit too much for me. I, I understand that. Yes, this has been a long stint uh, for you in LegCo, some 16 years. But just back to that earlier point I was making, on July the 1st, when uh, protesters stormed LegCo last year, you were ignored when you tried to stop them from going in. But, but in a way, I mean, that sort of passion actually helped, in a way, the government's cause rather than helping the cause of the protest movement. Well, yeah, you, um, well, that's why we were there. Uh, that's why we were trying to stop the storming. Um, and success, unsuccessful, though. Uh, I was tuckled away three times. And uh, I told them that this was not the action that was needed um, and that they could face rather severe consequences. And yet they told me that they had anticipated it and that uh, I realized later it was out of despair, total despair, that they want to sacrifice themselves. Um, this is really uh, heartbreaking. This is really not the, one, the, the kind of actions that we would like for our youngsters to do. But yet um, we don't seem to have, and they don't seem to have any solutions or any way out. Um, so I think it is time for them to try it out and see if they can uh, find any breakthrough. Uh, as for me, I will continue to stay uh, concerned with the vulnerable groups, uh, but perhaps in other uh, different positions. A pro-Beijing think tank has suggested relocating the Kuai Ching container terminals to an outlying island and building a new megaport there. It's one of several ideas put forward by the Our Hong Kong Foundation to boost the development of the logistics industry. Timmy Sung reports.
The Hong Kong port used to be the busiest in the world, but its ranking dropped to number eight last year. It also doesn't have as much supporting land as other top terminals, according to the Our Hong Kong Foundation. It blames a failure on the government's part to implement previous policies to support the logistics industry, and says with a lack of industrial land, many operators have turned to brownfield sites in the new territories. The foundation's head of land and housing research is Ryan Eep. All these examples have been telling us that seems the government haven't been having enough support to the、um, logistics industry. What we are trying to say is we still have some. Um, advantages in terms of our logistics industries, but we want our government to provide enough support to the industry so that、um, they can stand on the tide of what is happening in the world. The think tank proposes building four logistics nodes in the new territories to provide up to 930 hectares of land, saying this could offset the nearly 400 hectares of brownfield sites that the government plans to use for housing development in the next decade. Stephen Wong, the think tank's executive director, meanwhile says the new megaport is needed, and relocating the Kuaicheng terminal somewhere else would also release land for other development like housing. Considerations for the port's relocation is obviously has to do with insufficiency of the current port to address the current and increasing demand, and as a result, with bigger ships coming in,、uh, it's harder for us to have you know modern technological. Facilities with the existing port, and therefore, you know, there is a need in order to catch up. The foundation also says a statutory body is needed for the logistics industry, as current bodies are mostly only consultative in nature. Timmy Sung with that report. Chinese students in Sydney are falling victim to serious crimes. According to police, many are being threatened to coerce their families to pay out large sums of money. There are even cases of students being made to stage their own kidnappings to get a big payout for criminal gangs. The students are being targeted by a group operating offshore, with cases being reported in Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. The BBC Sydney reporter Frances Mao has been covering the story. She told her colleague Claire McDonnell about a set of pictures released by Australian police showing apparent kidnappings. These pictures were put out by New South Wales Police yesterday morning in a press conference, where they essentially sent out this warning、um, to the Chinese community to let them know about this issue. And so we've got pictures and videos of,、um, you know, young students、uh, tied up.、Uh, Bound.、Um, there's a there's a really distressing video of one man、um, in a shower who you know is crying and and saying in Chinese you know is anyone there? So how did we get to this point? So police、um, uh, police are quite clear to make it clear that this is kind of the extreme end of where the scam. Uh, ends up. It begins with what is actually、um, a bunch, basically a blitz of automated phone calls sent out to what police say are essentially anyone in Australia, in, in Sydney, with a Chinese last name.、Um, so you know, I've, I've spoken to a few people today who've mentioned that you know、uh, that they're not Chinese, but they've gotten these calls themselves, and they tend to just ignore them. But among the thousands of phone calls that are being sent out, they are. You know, catching a few people who fall victim to it,、um, and they're targeting. It's pretty、Chinese、convincing.、Students. It's convincing, isn't it? Because they usually speak in Mandarin. They demand that the student pay ongoing fees in order to avoid arrest or 
deportation um and they you know in these cases as you say the ones that have staged their own kidnappings they're also convinced to cease contact with their family and friends rent a hotel room and fake a hostage situation so how are the authorities convincing the students not to fall for this because clearly they're frightened aren't they precisely so look really it's an issue of being aware of this scam operating and and knowing about it Police have made the point that because this scam operates offshore, um, that it's really hard actually to to you know trace the criminals and, and find them. So the best way to do it is uh, by prevention, and so that's by greater awareness and education. Uh, so that's through the universities getting the message out there. Um, you know, Chinese students themselves here on social media, you know, being being aware of it. Um, it you know, it starts with the automated phone call, which might you know someone from the Chinese authority saying, you know, you have an urgent message, you must contact this, you know, government spokesperson. But then it escalates, um, you know, it might start with one payment, um, then it'll go to another, they'll keep on extorting the student to the point where the student feels, you know, so much in fear of the threat that they're really under the psychological control of these scanners. In the United States, Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee, is days away from announcing his pick of a running mate and someone who could become the next vice president. The choice is an opportunity for presidential candidates to give the nation an insight into their decision-making process and offer clues about the type of administration they would assemble. The BBC's Anthony Zercher reports. Joe Biden has now narrowed his VP search to six Biden contenders. is more closely scrutinizing options for our Progressives running. are already Secretary weighing in on who they think floated as possible vice presidential picks. Just the ticket as Joe Biden's running mate. Speculation is swirling, but we already have an idea of the kind of person Joe Biden is going to pick to be his running mate. My cabinet, my administration will look like the country, and I commit that I will, in fact, pick a woman to be vice president. That historic announcement in March was an important acknowledgement of the political reality facing Biden. As an older white man, he's under pressure to round out the ticket with someone who will reflect the diversity of a Democratic Party that receives nearly half of its support from ethnic minorities and the young. With that in mind, four of the candidates are black, including top contender California Senator Kamala Harris, who ran against Biden for the Democratic nomination and clashed with him on issues of race in their first debate. Any hard feelings, however, appear to have been patched up. I have decided that I am with great enthusiasm going to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. According to Howard Dean, former head of the Democratic National Committee and a former presidential candidate himself, Harris's experience under the national media spotlight gives her an advantage over some of her rivals. It's a completely different game. The press corps behaves differently. And, of course, the press corps has now evolved into sort of a reality show mentality. That makes it even worse. Former National Security Advisor and U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Susan Rice is another possible choice for Biden. Her advantage is that she is a familiar face for the former vice president, having worked with him in the Obama White House. According to Stephanie Brown James, co-founder of the Collective PAC, a group that lobbies to get more African-Americans into politics, picking a black woman to be his running mate, Biden would give a leadership role to a key constituency that has long been taken for granted by the Democratic Party. Black voters at the end of the day are looking for a candidate, whether in the presidential candidate or VP candidate, that is someone that can speak to their needs, their issues, and come up with solutions to say, this is what I would do because this is what I have done. 
Others have suggested that the best woman for Biden is Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth, a former Army colonel who lost both of her legs when the helicopter she was piloting was shot down in Iraq. Duckworth would also be the first Thai American to be on a presidential ticket. Looking to shore up the support of the liberal wing of the party, Biden could pick another of his Democratic primary opponents, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's a grassroots favorite, but at 70, her addition would mean the ticket would have a combined age of 147 years. We both want the same thing. We want this country to work, and we want it to work for everyone. In modern times, the vice presidential spot has become a real boon for the person who is selected. A former vice president or vice presidential candidate has been a major party presidential nominee 11 times since 1960. According to author and presidential historian Kate Anderson Bauer, the influence and importance of the U.S. vice presidency has significantly grown in the modern political era. We've gone from a place where, you know, it was famously said by John Nance Garner, who was one of FDR's VPs, that the vice presidency is not worth a bucket of warm spit. And now it's something that people are vying for. In the end, the process and priorities behind choosing a running mate are unique to every presidential candidate. But there's one top priority for most Democrats. I prefer that we have a progressive candidate, but the truth is Donald Trump is the motivating factor in this race. Howard Dean ending that report by the BBC's Anthony Zercher. Those stories were part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm coming home now, right away. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm sorry now I ever went away. Every night and day I go and stay. I'm coming home, baby. I'm home. Coming home, baby, now. You know I'm waiting for you. I'm coming home now, real soon. You've been gone. Coming home, baby, now. You don't know what I'm going I'm coming home, I know I'm overdue Since you went away Expect me any day now, real soon I'm coming home I'm on home Coming home, baby, now You know I'm praying every night And everything is gonna be fine Please come on Coming home, baby, now I want to feel you hold me tight Expect to see me now, anytime When I'm in your arms You're in my arms, I'll be fine I'm coming home I'm coming home, baby, now. You know I'm coming every day. I'm coming home now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Use your phone. I'm coming home, baby, now. And baby, let me hear you say. I'm coming home, you hearing what I say. That you're coming home. And I never will go away. I'm coming home.
I'm coming home, baby, now. Oh, baby, say you're coming home. That's what I say, I say I'm coming home. Something's wrong. The road is long, baby, now. What do either ride a phone? I'm coming home and never more to roam. Baby, tell me you're coming home. Baby, I'm for sure coming home. I'm coming home. Coming home, baby. Coming home, baby. Uh, originally from 1961, and uh, uh, that was uh, Mel Torm. Uh, the uh, American jazz singer. Uh, in 1962, he kind of claimed the song and he had a big hit with it. Uh, Mel Torm and Coming Home, Baby. Wayne Newton now. Darker shame, darling, darker shame. Thank you for all the joy and pain. Picture show, second balcony. Was the place we'd meet, second seat, gold Dutch treat. You were sweet. Dark as shame, dark. 